0: pray for God's help. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, please help us as we see you at work uh, to see your glory, to trust you. Uh, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, they've finally called it. It seems like the American election is decided. Well, hopefully. Well, uh, hopefully. But what I think will be really interesting is the blame game that follows. Uh, Who made mistakes? Whose fault was it? Uh, People are are happy to take credit for the victory, uh, but they're not so quick to to sort of uh, take take the blame for the loss, so um, so let's see what happens there. And as we think about who's at fault, uh, people ask similar questions as they read about these events in in the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. They're pointing fingers at God. That perhaps they're angry with Him. Perhaps they're puzzled. Uh, it seems so unfair that innocent people, even animals, would die. Uh, more than one person said to me, "Why do the poor donkeys have to die?" You know, uh, in the, the 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 firstborn, as we uh, just because Pharaoh was stubborn. Why do the animals have to die? Uh, why did God have to do it this way rather than some other way? Uh, but there's no avoiding the fact. If we just take Uh, a high level view of these chapters the obvious thing is that God acts. God is at work here. This is full of what God says and does. He's not just sitting back and watching he's the main player he brings the plagues he hardens Pharaoh's heart he makes the Egyptians look on the Israelites with favour when they go he kills the firstborn he baits Pharaoh into a trap at the Red Sea. He makes the sea crash down and drown the Egyptians. It's God who knows what's going to happen. It's God who makes it happen. The God of the Bible is a God who acts decisively in history. We can't get around that. Whatever decision you come to about these terrible, awesome events, you can't get away from the fact that God is responsible for them. And of course what that means is he's responsible for all the things that happen in our lives as well. Uh, Not just the good things, but the not-so-good things, the bad things. Uh, He's responsible for the cancer and the COVID and the natural disasters and the suffering and the death of loved ones. Now, we may debate the precise wording, uh, whether he's allowing, permitting or bringing, and, you know, there's some sort of, Um, debate around that of course but he's king, he is king over it all Uh, there's a mystery in those things God is perfectly good and yet he isn't the author of evil Uh, he's the sovereign king but he's also the righteous judge who holds us accountable for our decisions which are independent and free He rules with perfect wisdom and goodness, and yet at the same time, he's ruling over a fallen world where there is sin and brokenness and pain and death. There's a mystery in these things. Many of us are are experiencing those things and have been for a number of years. The sorts of situations where I'm sure your non Christian friends have have either said directly to, to you or at least thought, How can you still believe in God? after everything that's happened to you. How can you believe in a God who allows or brings or does this? But my opinion is always, well, what other option do you have? Either he's there and not interested, which is pretty miserable, or else he's not there at all, in which case it's, everything is just bad luck. If God's not controlling things, then it, everything's just random. Uh, To me, that's more hopeless and depressing than a God who's controlling things. What's so good about believing in the God of the Bible, the God of these chapters, is that God is controlling the events. He is sovereign. Whatever happens, no matter how painful or difficult it seems to me, no matter whether I understand it or not, he He has a good reason for it. He loves me. He's working all things for my good. So that, that's just the first high- level observation on these chapters. before we actually dive down below the clouds, God acts. Second uh, observation, zooming in a little closer, God is acting for his people. He's acting for his people. He doesn't He's not just picking any old group at random. it's Israel he's made promises to. He's called them, he's grown them into a nation. And as we saw last week, it's Israel he'll rescue. He sent nine plagues on Egypt. And after each one, Pharaoh has a chance to let Israel go. Uh, But he doesn't. At the end of chapter 10, the plague of darkness hasn't worked. And so we get to chapter 11 and God plays his final card. And he's held back the worst until last. Uh, Verse verse 1, the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on pharaoh and on egypt and after that he will let you go from here and when he does he'll drive you out completely this is it the last roll of the dice pharaoh doesn't know it but we know what's coming do you remember back in chapter 4 verse 21 god had told moses to say to pharaoh this is what the lord says israel is my firstborn son i told you let my son go so he would worship me but you refuse to let him go so I will kill your firstborn son. This is God the Father jealously defending and rescuing his son. So whatever else you make of the death of Egypt's firstborn it's not simply a brutal act it's not simply vengeance it's, it's sending a message to Pharaoh the anguish you feel for your son that's what I feel. For my son Israel. The love I feel, the love you feel for your son, that's the love I feel for Israel. Pharaoh's uh, been warned, and so we move to chapter 12. Uh, God gives his people a part to play in all of this as well. They have to trust him, uh, they show that trust in practical, concrete ways. They're to pack up all their possessions, they're to sacrifice a lamb. They're to paint its blood on the doorposts. They're to hold back the yeast from their bread because God is going to come soon and it won't have time to rise. They're to eat with their travelling clothes on and their shoes on their feet. They're to get ready because God is about to act. And that's what they do. Chapter 12, verse 28 says that they did everything God commanded. Hold chapters full of instructions and they do it. And now all I have to do is wait. They finish dinner. It's ten o'clock. They wait. Conversation slows. Kids fall asleep. Eleven o'clock. They're still waiting. Everyone's silent. The expectation, the anticipation grows. Do they begin to look at each other and wonder what if nothing happens? They're still waiting. But then in verse 29, God acts at midnight. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. One action. Salvation and judgment. Mercy and punishment. Life and death. Protection, attack. Tragedy and joy. All on the same night. night. And what strikes me is after the detailed instructions of what they were to do, the actual event itself is one verse. It's surprisingly brief, isn't it? And then in verse 31, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and, and tells them to go, he's had enough. He's finally understood who God is and who Israel is, what it means for God to love Israel as a firstborn son. He understands it here. He's lost his firstborn son. But but notice his last words. They're not a parting shot. They're not a final defiant stand and finger pointing as they march out the door. But verse 32 And also, bless me. I think we debated on this at our home group on Friday night. What's behind those words? I think they're the words of a beaten man. A a quiet recognition that he's lost. A recognition that God is the one who controls things after all and not him. We all need to get to that. My prayer is that this would be a year where millions of people around the world get to that point where they recognise that they're not in control and God is. And so Israel goes. Verse 37, 600,000 men plus women, children and animals as well. Everyone out into the desert. God's done it. He's acted for his people. But the story's not finished, is it? The job is only half done because Pharaoh hasn't really learned his lesson. Jump over chapter 13 for a moment. Jump to chapter 14, verse 1. God tells Moses to camp near the sea. Don't head straight towards the promised land. Don't follow the Mediterranean. Duck down a bit uh, and it'll look like you're lost. Uh, It's almost like baiting a trap. Verse 3, camp by the sea. Then Pharaoh will think, You're wandering around, you're lost, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then in verse 5, that's exactly what happens. Pharaoh has second thoughts, and he comes after Israel with his army. Somehow Israel knows, do they hear it, do they see it? Uh, And they're petrified, and they come to Moses and they complain we saw before that Moses passed on the complaint upwards to God. Why, what are you doing? But, but now Moses is different. Uh, he says in verse 13, uh, Don't be afraid, stand firm and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. Uh, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then in verse 21, Moses stretches out his hand over the sea and during the night the Lord uh, divides the waters and Israel walks through the middle in dry ground. Just imagine it. Most of these Israelites would never have even seen the sea. And here they are walking through it, seeing it from in the inside. A surging wall of black water on the right and on the left. Don't forget this is at night time. There's not much light. There's a million people walking quietly down towards the water and across the sandy floor of the sea. It's eerie and awesome and scary. But verse 23, still night, the Egyptians realise Israel are getting away. Do they hear them, perhaps from the other side of the cloud? And they, and they arrive at the seashore and they see the footprints heading down into the sea. They see the walls of water with the dry path down there through the middle. Now, just imagine you're an Israelite, an Egyptian soldier. You've lived through the 10 plagues. Uh, The the mosquito bites are still itching, the boils are still healing, the memories of your dead son are still fresh. But Pharaoh's cracking the whip, and so verse 23, they start down. They start chasing down into the sea, across the seabed they go. Chariots, horses, soldiers. But now it's nearly sunrise. The time when most surprise army attacks happen. And in verse 24, God looks down from the cloud at what's happening. And he throws the army into confusion. There's a bit of uncertainty about what the words mean, whether the axles bend or, sorry, the wheels bend or they come off or or they buckle or they bog. Uh, But there's all sorts of pandemonium, pandemonium. There's shouting and noise and chaos, and uh, so much so that verse 25, the Egyptians realise it's God who's fighting. This is not natural, and they try to flee. But verse 27, from the far side of the sea, Moses stretches out his hand and it just falls back into place. Gravity does what it normally does. And Pharaoh's army is drowned. And in verse 28, the water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived, but the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on the right and on their left that day the Lord saved Israel and so for Israel it's time to praise God to worship him which is chapter 15 it's a great chapter but we just don't have time for it today he saved his firstborn son it's miraculous and marvellous and amazing and at least for a little while a chapter or two Israel's prepared to follow God But we can't help asking the question, why this particular way? There are corpses everywhere. Whether they're frogs or animals or firstborn sons or Egyptian soldiers, the the land is littered with corpses. Why this way? God could easily have softened Pharaoh's heart, but all the way through he's hardened it. God could have worked things so that no one was killed at all. Jump forward a thousand years and that's exactly what he does with Nehemiah. Israel's in exile, not in Egypt, but in Babylon. And Nehemiah is not the king's adopted son, but the king's wine taster. And all he has to do is look sad. And the king says, oh, what's wrong, Nehemiah? And he says, I want to go home. And he says, okay. (laughs) Okay. Now, how simple is that? God could have worked the exodus like that. But he didn't. He did things this way for a reason. And if we look closely, he tells us exactly why. He tells us again and again. We saw it back in chapter 9. He's talking to Pharaoh through Moses and says, "'For by now I could have stretched out my hand "'and struck you and your people with a plague "'that would have wiped you off the earth.' But I've raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Uh, Chapter 14, verse 4. God explaining to Moses what's going to happen at the Red Sea. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. He says the same thing again in verse 17 and verse 18. I will gain glory for myself. This is God's ultimate purpose in why he did things the way he did at the Exodus, to bring glory to himself. Acclaim, honour, recognition, worship. He wanted Israel and Egypt and us to know that he alone was God. And at least to begin with, it worked. Uh, Chapter 14 finishes uh, with this conclusion. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. And the big message of these chapters, the big message of the Bible, is that God wants us to do that same thing. To recognise, to give him glory, to fear him and to trust him. You see, God may not have rescued us from a foreign oppressor like Egypt, but the interesting thing is the story of the Exodus gives the rest of the Bible, the authors of the rest of the Bible, the language, the, the concepts, the vocabulary to describe what God does for us. The story of the Exodus provides the vocabulary for what God's done for us. It's the shadows for our reality. It's the black and white cartoon to our ultra high definition colour. We need rescuing by God as well. The Bible describes our rebellion and our sin as slavery. It says we need to be redeemed from that slavery. It says we need a lamb's blood to save us. Back then, a lamb protected only one household. But we have the perfect Passover lamb in Jesus who died for all humanity to cover all sin. As glorious as the events of the Exodus was, as much as it upholds and highlights God's glory, what's really incredible is that the picture of Jesus' frail and broken body is even more glorious and causes us to recognise God's glory even more than the events of the Passover and the Red Sea. Jesus' broken body, one event, revealing God's love and justice, his punishment and salvation, reveals God's glory. So what should our example be? Uh, Sorry, what should our response be? to the glory of God revealed in Jesus? Well, it should be to follow the example of the Israelites who recognised the glory of God in the Exodus. What did they do? Well, they they recognised that they needed rescue. They were slaves who needed rescue and they trusted the God who saved them. They remembered what he did and they worshipped him. They recognised and trusted. They remembered and worshipped. We need to recognise that we are slaves who need rescue and we need to trust the God who rescues us in Jesus. The Israelites obeyed God's instructions. They covered the doors with the blood of a lamb. They got ready. They waited. They relied on God. We can do the same. We can recognise that we're enslaved to sin and death and we need to trust the work of Jesus. That he's delivered us. We need to rely on his rescue. We need to pack up our old life and step into a new one. And then we need to worship him. Chapter 15 is all about that, about Israel singing in relief and praise that they had been rescued. And we can follow their example. We can hum along, but it's more than singing, isn't it? We're not just to sing. We're to offer complete lives in worship and praise, in gratitude and loyalty. We're to remember and uh, we're, we're to recognise and trust. We're to worship, and we're to remember. A big slab of the chapters uh, of these chapters are about what Israel is to do to remember. Uh, chapter twelve is all about the Passover feast. It, it, it's about 25 verses of it is about remembering and only one describes the actual Passover. It's almost like the remembering is more important than the Passover that happened. Every year Israel is to celebrate the Passover, to remember. Uh, For example, chapter 12 verse 14 says, This is the day you are to commemorate for generations to come. You are to celebrate as a festival to the Lord a lasting ordinance. Every year, remember what God has done. Or well, Chapter 13, that we jumped over before, a lot of it is about the dedication of the firstborn. Every time there's a baby born, if it's a male, if it's the firstborn male, be it human or animal, uh, it's to be dedicated to God. Why do that? Well, because God took the firstborn sons of Egypt to rescue them. Verse 14 says, in the days to come when your son asks you, and I think this is the redeemed son, the firstborn son who's who's actually not sacrificed to God, but an animal is sacrificed in his place. When that son asks you why you sacrificing this animal, here's what you're to say to him. With a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And look at verse 16. It's interesting we talked about this one on Friday night as well at our home group. It'll be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord, has, uh, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Notice that whether it's the Passover in chapter 12 or the dedication of the firstborn in chapter 13, they're both physical activities. They're not just words you say. There's something to do with your senses. Uh, and any teacher will tell you, we remember and we learn better when we do more than just hear it. But when we do it, when we imitate it, When we see and smell and taste and touch. And God says, when you do these things, they'll be like a sign in your hand and a symbol on your forehead. They'll become uh, part of you. They'll affect the things that you do. They'll affect the things that you think about. You will change as you do them and you remember them and they change you. God gave these activities to Israel because they're a great great way to remember. So that's it. That's our response to these chapters. Uh, Recognise and trust, worship and remember. Uh, Which is just what we do in another regular memorial, another physical memory aid. Uh, It's just what Jesus did uh, in the events that would supersede or fulfil the Passover for us. We think about Luke 22 when Jesus took the, the, the actual bread and the wine that they were celebrating the Passover with and he connected those elements to his body and he said to remember him. We call it now the Lord's Supper. We use physical things to represent spiritual events and what's so good about them, just like We've seen here physical things help us to remember. Bread and juice remind us of Jesus' body and blood. Food and drink give us physical life. Jesus' body crucified, his blood spilt, give us spiritual life. And as we chew and as we swallow, we do the same three things that the Jews did. We eat and drink and we recognise we need a saviour. Just as we need physical food, we need the spiritual food of Jesus to give us life. And we trust him. And as we eat and drink, we worship. Uh, Eating and drinking proclaims to the world uh, that true life and nourishment is only found in Jesus. As we eat and drink together, we proclaim to the world that we are united uh, around the Lord Jesus who gives us light. And thirdly, we remember the Passover Lamb that was sacrificed for us. Recognise and trust, worship and remember. Let's pray. Our heavenly Father, please help us to recognise our need for You. Help us to trust what the Lord Jesus has done for us to rescue and redeem. Help us to worship You with words. Uh, with singing, but with lives, with actions as well. Uh, And help us to remember. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.